by being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And by being a racing driver means you are racing with other people. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. Because we are competing. We are competing to win. And, and the main motivation to all of us is to compete for victory. Welcome to the Late Night Race Review. Thanks for joining us for a special episode this week. I'm Dave Jericho, and with me as always is Owen Scott. Don't forget to give the podcast a follow or subscribe on your platform of choice. And with that said, let's get on with it. Scotty? So yesterday, Dave, uh, marked the 28th anniversary of the tragic passing of one of Formula One's greats, Ayrton Senna. Uh, With over 160 F1 races, 41 victories, 65 podiums, and of course, the three drivers' titles. A career that spanned a decade, starting back with his first race in Brazil in 1984 until his tragic accident in 1994 um, at the San Marino Grand Prix. Before we look back on Senna's career, what is one of your earliest or perhaps favorite memories of Ayrton Senna? Do you know, I have to say, I think for me, the earliest memory is, I don't know, well, I'll say my earliest memory, even though it's a faint memory, is probably my favorite memory. because I suppose I started watching Formula One with my dad when I was a kid. And we used to watch it like on race days on Sundays, you'd watch it. <laughs> and we were Nigel Mansell fans. So we were, well, my dad was a Nigel Mansell fan and I just sort of followed suit. You know, whatever he was shouting at the TV, I was shouting alongside him. <laughs> um, the race I remember or have the fondest memory of would be the Jerez, the Spanish Grand Prix uh, in 86. Um, and mainly because... Again, my dad was cheering on Nigel Mansell. I, 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 the, the, and that's why I say it's a faint memory of Ayrton Senna, but it's a fond memory of it because of my dad, you know, watching it and getting into Formula One with my dad. But that race, I mean, ended up being a classic and ended up being, I think, the third, second or third closest finish in, in Formula One history. Um, and of course, you don't remember, or as a kid, I don't remember sort of, what Ayrton Senna did. All I remember is, you know, me and my dad jumping around the sitting room, cheering on Nigel Mansell to, 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 to gain on Senna to, to win the race. So you're just like this five-year-old kid amped up, jumping around on the sofa, you know? So yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably my fondest memories that is the, the Spanish Grand Prix for, for a couple of reasons, I suppose. For those who don't know, give us a brief rundown of what happened during the race that led it to be one of the closest finishes of all time, I believe 14 thousandths of a second between them over the line yeah it was fantastic i think it went down as like i said before it went down as one of the closest finishes in f1 history um and top proper on your feet cheering uh to the to, to the to the checkered flag um but not many people were, were there at the at the grand prix i mean it was the first time back in jerez in four years and um, you saw the spanish fans you know they had no driver that they were rooting for the ticket yeah. prices were high um, so there was very low sort of turnout um, but I mean, there's no point in going lap by lap through it because look, it's, uh, it wasn't that exciting of a race until sort of the very end or sort of the last nine, 10 laps in. Yeah. Um, but you had the sort of the top five, you had Senna, PK, uh, Rosberg, Mansell and Prost sort of all setting the pace out front. You had sort of Senna that was setting the, the pace, you know, sort of fuel saving effectively similar to what we have now, fuel and tire saving. Yeah. Um, and then I think 
as the race went on, then you were getting to sort of about 10 laps during the middle of the race where Mansell then started to make a move and started overtaking cars until he eventually, I think, I think we got to about lap 30, lap 40 or something like that, lap 39, lap 40, uh, when he finally caught and passed Senna, um, which was, I think that was, I think we had Prost in the mix there as well. I can't quite remember that, that, that particular lap, but hmm. what you had then was Mansell, then his tires started going off and then Senna started catching him back. Um, but then sort of Mansell then was managed to, to hold up Senna enough that Prost then came into mix. So you had sort of like a three-way fight then. Class. And Mansell's tires started going off and Mansell then started dropping back. And then we had an issue where Mansell then decided, all right, nine laps left. I'm coming in for a set of tires. And obviously Senna and Prost staying out, uh, staying out on the track. So Mansell comes in. You've got then, do, does his pit stop. I can't quite remember. I don't think there was much of a speed limit in the pit lane at that stage. So they were pr pretty much herring into those pit lanes. So yeah. he came in for his pit stop and he had, a, I think it was about 19 seconds behind with nine laps left nice. but managed to catch then he was catching Senna I think three to four seconds a lap Ugh. on on Senna um and then literally coming up to the last hairpin literally the last hairpin like the the, the front wing of Mansell was up against the rear of Senna and as they then exited the hairpin coming down the straight Mansell pulled out to the left and it was sort of like a drag race. And literally, I'd say with a couple of about 100 yards or so to go to the pit to, to the finish flag, Mansell just started creeping up and his tires were kind of, you could just see his front tires leveling up with the rear tires and, and getting closer and closer. And then, of course, the two of them crossed the line then. And Senna took the win with, like you said, 14 thousandths of a second. It was absolutely, it's a fantastic. And if anyone hasn't seen it, I highly recommend doing a little bit of a dig into YouTube and having a look at the highlights of that race. It's fantastic. The ending was fantastic yeah proper proper photo finish absolutely proper photo finish and when you see those two cars coming out of the corner and the, the, the old cars you can see the power that was in them and the and and how much they were wrestling with them you can just feel the energy that was coming off those that that sort of racing it was brilliant absolutely yeah. brilliant so you know, what what type of of driver for again for for people who don't who don't know urton center or are coming into this fresh um what what type of driver was he and, and how would you define his his driving style do you know he's like he was he was an aggressive driver um he as much as you, you can be an aggressive driver but he adapted very well so he was able to keep that aggressive style through different sort of generations different regulation changes uh, and different teams so different type of cars having to keep that aggre aggressive driving style across all these different changes so the ability to do that was fantastic mm -hmm. um very much like i mean you know ha, was was never going to give an inch was never going to give up a corner um just absolutely fantastic and he had like w one of the things i think and again i'm i'm gonna sort of paraphrase on this but one of the things he he sort of um pioneered was during the turbo era he because of the, because of the anti-lag or, or the, the, the the lag on the turbo he used to feather the throttle through the corner so that when he exited the corner, the, the, the turbo was already spooled up. So he was getting a better drive out of the, and the turbo kicking in quicker coming out of a corner than other drivers were getting. So he, he was able to, to, to draw so much from, from the cars. Um, it was absolutely fantastic. Like. Mm. Just such great intelligence as well. I know you say about 
um, his his intensity. I, I heard a good quote by Jordan Peterson saying, uh, it, "It's better to be a warrior in the garden than a gardener at war." So learning <laughs> lear, learning to to kind of channel your rage and learn how to use it and control it, um, rather than Absolutely. just going off the handle and um, and not being able to to control yourself. Um, but that so, and that's it. He was an aggressive. But that's a good thing. Like he he was an aggressive driver, but he was it was controlled well yeah. until we saw him with Prost maybe later on in his career. But it was it was relatively controlled aggression. It was aggression with the way he drove the car as well. You know the the fe- feathering the throttle through the corners. You know you know when you see those old eighties shots of cars sort of sliding. You know, you, you know, they're sort of almost drifting around corners and stuff like that. Um, you know, he was just that, that's, you know, just really aggressive, uh, late breaking into corners. It was absolutely fantastic. And even the defensive side of his game as well. He was, you know, elbows out again, wouldn't give wouldn't give an inch um, and wouldn't give up a corner. If it meant the two of them going off the track, which it often had done in the past. Yeah, he, he that that's 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 the sacrifice he was willing to make if it meant winning the race. If I'm not winning the race, nobody's winning the race. <laughs> <laughs> and I I think I already know the answer to this question. But what drivers would you think are are similar to to Ayrton Senna today? It has to be Max Verstappen, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it has to be with the aggression. Um, even again, and just literally the last thing I said there about not giving up a corner, that's very much Max Verstappen. You know, he would happily take the two of them out. Okay, maybe he's he's starting to evolve a little bit now. Uh, maybe that was in his early days. Mm-hmm. But even the wet conditions, like Max Verstappen's excellent in, in, in wet conditions. And Senna as well, he was fantastic in wet conditions. I mean, we only have to look at his, his uh, rookie year um, in Monaco to, to, to see how well he did in in those wet conditions um yeah i mentioning monaco this as you said it was his rookie year it didn't take him long to kind of announce himself uh on arrival in f1 did it no i mean that that race that was i mean that was only the fifth race of his of his rookie season and he was down in 13th on the grid for uh, on a sopping like an absolute downpour of him like so heavy that if it was today the race wouldn't even start you know, yeah, like yeah. you know, those like we wouldn't even be racing in in modern day Formula One. That's how heavy the rain was coming down. Um, actually, I saw a funny thing as well. Actually, on that race in Monaco, that the rain was actually so heavy that James Hunt and um, Murray Walker were doing the commentary on BBC, and their TV feed cut out because of the because of the rain. Like it was coming down so heavy, their TV feed to, to the commentary box cut out, so they wow. could only give the the race positions by looking out the window of the commentary box and wait for cars <laughs> to come by. Then they could tell people on the TV. You know, sort of where everybody is in the in the race. That's amazing. Um, yeah, but I mean, he he started thirteenth in that race, and within I think fifteen laps, he was up to fourth. Um, and even with the conditions worsening um, or fluctuating, he was still setting fastest laps. Um, which, when you, like I said, is great if if he was a seasoned driver, but as a rookie, uh, first time around Monaco in an F one car. Yeah. Uh, in wet conditions absolutely incredible like um but he's yeah he 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 started catching then uh prost was in first started catching up with prost so he's in second catching up with prost and then prost apparently for oh it must have been the guts of three or four laps i believe was trying to call for a red flag um yeah. of the race and then eventually the red flag did come out um and i think prost then start stopped the car on the on the start finish straight 
Um, but Senna sort of beamed on past him, went round for another lap, like, and thought, oh, I've won it. Like, let's just go around and celebrate. Only, obviously, to come back and find out that the, the actual official count was going to be from the lap before. Yeah. So he, uh, he came in second on, uh, on that race. But, uh, but still, second rookie season, wet Monaco. It's come second to, to Alan Prost. Uh, that, that was just incredible. And, and again, sort of show, highlight your, your ability in the wet is absolutely fantastic. And in, in somewhat of an, an inferior car as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it would have been, especially to the McLaren anyway. Um, but I mean, look, he didn't have to, well, he had to wait a little bit. I mean, it was, I think it was the following season in Portugal then when he got his, he got his first, uh, his maiden win, but uh, absolutely yeah. fantastic drive. But that race though, uh, just a little bit of a tidbit of information on that and take it, take it as you will, like whoever's, you know, the conspiracy theories, everyone get their tinfoil hats out. Um, <laughs> but uh, there was actually controversy about that. Um, there was Jackie X, I think X is the way you pronounce his name. Sorry if I'm wrong on that one. So someone write in and correct me. Um, he was the race director and he drove for Porsche in the world endurance championship. Uh, and Pross McLaren had turbo engineered by, Porsche in the back of their car and the conspiracy is that they could see because they they weren't stopping the race and they could see then that Senna was probably going to take Prost for the win and they the conspiracy is that Ix then called the red flag because he was a Porsche driver and wanted his um wanted his uh the the company that employ him uh to win the race basically um which Look, take it as you take it with a pinch of salt. But that look, I'm just delivering the conspiracies. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do best. That's what we do best. <laughs> uh, but he has a career full of uh, full of amazing highlights. But but what about his his comeback drive in Suzuka in 1988 season, and of course his his first uh, driver's title with that? Like this was the start of something interesting. Like this was his first season with McLaren. Um, sorry, Alan Prost. And again, I don't know whether I, I haven't seen any confirmation about this, but I believe Alan Prost was very instrumental in getting Senna uh, to, to, to or getting the team to bring Senna to McLaren, yeah. um, which is obviously if that is true, then that is a move that he well, maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he doesn't look back at it with regret, because I mean, it's given Formula One some of the two of the greatest seasons. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he, I am assuming he did do that with the expectation that, you know, Prost was going to be number one, Senna was yeah. going to be number two, like, um, but uh, it did give us two seasons of the greatest rivalry, especially team rivalry that yeah. I think we've had in Formula One ever. Like, it was absolutely fantastic. But, um, and then going into that race, which may, may, makes this even more special. So you had that, that, that was sort of the lead up. That was the start of the season. Obviously, he signs in McLaren. Then we go to Suzuka, which is the last race or second last race of the season. Yet Australia was the last race, mm-hmm. uh, second last race of the season. If uh, Senna wins in Suzuka, he wins the driver's title, um, but ends up. Uh, I think he stalls the car off the line. He, he's, he's he's in pole position. As far as I remember, he had pole position in that race. Um, stalls it on the on the line and drops back to fourteenth. Um, and manages then a comeback drive from 14th to take the win. And I think not only did he take the win, but I think 
And again, I'm, I'm going to be going literally off the top of my head here, but I think he took the win by like nine seconds or 10 seconds um, from, from um, Prost. And when you consider this wasn't varying conditions, like this was a dry race. He came yeah. from 14 to win on a dry track. I mean, yeah. and in a race where, like, I mean, look, what we're we talking about, 88, like, He's only a few years. He, he's, he's what? He's four years yeah. an F1 driver. Not enough to be fully experienced, like, you know. And he managed to have um, that calm to be able to make a drive like that, knowing that the world championship is on the line and still managed to get it over the line and win the world championship. I mean, that for me is just, I mean, that speaks highly of the man himself like as well like his, his determination and, and his commitment and and his ability for that clear thinking of what needed to be done i mean look we only have to look back at some of his quotes and stuff like that of what he says he's, he's very much um yeah he, he knew what needed to be done fantastic absolutely fantastic also, another great highlight was his first home victory in 91 at Interlagos in Brazil. He managed to finish the race stuck in sixth gear to take the victory. And on, on the podium, he was so physically exerted and his shoulders were, were so sore that he could barely lift the trophy above his head. That's right. That was that race, was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, I remember seeing that. And uh, yeah, you could see his, his arms shaking as he was trying to, to hold the t- trophy above his head. That's right. Unbelievable. He actually physically he, he he passed out in the car at the end of the race from the exertion of trying to keep it going around the track in sixth. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable, isn't it? It's absolutely unbelievable. Just unreal. So unfortunately, his his career came to a shocking end in '94 at the San Marino GP when his car went off the track at the Tamburello on lap seven. Um, the telemetry data recovered from the car showed that he entered the corner at 309, 300, 309 kilometers yeah, an hour. That, yeah. um, and then braked and then downshifted twice in an effort to kind of slow the car down and ultimately collided with the unprotected concrete barrier at yeah. 211 kilometers an hour. That is a serious collision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what can you tell us uh, about that weekend at the San Marino GP and the, and the lead up to the accident at the Tamburello? Do you know, in Formula One, like there's been dark weekends. I mean, it, it was common even before this, sort of especially 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, you know, drivers dying uh, during races. Um, usually every season, a driver or two would die. Mm. And so, but this weekend was particularly a bad weekend. I mean, you had two fatalities one near fatality and another sort of major collision um so <clears throat> excuse me um so yeah on the friday i mean we had the, the the first instance was on the friday which we had uh rubens barrichello clipping the curb um taking flight hitting the i mean we were talking about this just before the the podcast but taking flight and sort of misses or or just barely clips the top of the tire barrier clips the wall that's the, the sporting wall that's behind it um and the sport netting and then sort of the nose of the car then clips the top of the the the, the tire barrier and then sort of flips them back out onto the circuit or onto the side of the circuit yeah um i mean he was doing there at about 220 kilometers an hour and if for anyone who hasn't seen the footage obviously you don't need to watch it if you don't want to watch something like that but he 
to say he took flight is exactly what happened. He hit the curb and the, the, the car, the trajectory of the car was only going up. Um, yeah. So it, it was absolutely crazy. Um, and he got lucky as well, because, I mean, he had swallowed his tongue and only for Sid Watkins, who would have been at the time, he was the, the F1 on track uh, medical team or the head of the on track medical team. Uh, he arrived and was able to, to, to sort of clear his airway, uh, uh, you know, sort of take the tongue out from, from the throat. Um, and where they were able to then sort of sort of stabilize him on the on the grid or on sorry on the track and get him to the medical center mm-hmm. um so it was it was great i mean it, it, it's strange as well and i mean there's a lot of stories going around about what happened next and, and sort of what went on but senna did sort of visit rubens in the medical center which um you know which which is you can imagine his fellow countrymen um, you would imagine that's what that was. Uh, he he was going to do that, um, and I think you know, sort of, he was there when Rubens regained consciousness. And I think as well, Rubens wanted to get <laughs> Rubens wanted to get back in his car. I think it was one of the um, oh, I want to say I can't think of the guy's name. I think it was uh, oh god, I'm thinking I got Gary Adams, but I think I might have that wrong. Um, but he went to see Rubens and he basically told him to get the backup car ready. He wanted to, to jump in the backup car, but I mean, that was just going on pure adrenaline. You know, he was just, he had just kind of come regain consciousness. He was on pure adrenaline. And of course then, you know, he was saying then obviously when they left him alone for a while and his body sort of calmed down, then he realized how sort of battered and bruised he was. And uh, I think the thought of getting in the backup car (laughs) suddenly went out of his, out of his mind, fairly sharpish. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, it, and, and I mean, that's sort of, it only got worse from there um, the weekend, unfortunately. Um, I mean, we had then the, 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 the final qualifying then on Saturday um, where we had another major incident where we had sort of Roland Ratzenberger um, and he was coming into the, I think it was the Villeneuve curve. I think it is the Villeneuve curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and his front wings broke off, went underneath the car and he was doing 314 kilometers an hour and the, went under the car, had no, obviously no steering. You're just, you're, you're on a sled at that point. You know, you're, you're, you're on a skid, um, went straight into the concrete barrier uh, and was killed, uh, killed instantly. Yeah. Um, and I actually have, um, let me just bring it up here now. I actually have a little excerpt I want to read. I actually have two excerpts, but I have one excerpt here I want to read. And uh, just had some, some quotes from Sid Watkins um, and he also gives a little bit of insight into Senna's mentality over that race weekend and him as a driver as well. Yeah. <clears throat> so bear with me. I'll try and read this out as best as I can. Okay. Um, so Senna com- commandeered a course car to go to the scene, only to be told by the late F1 medical officer and world-renowned neurosurgeon, Dr. Sid Watkins, there was no hope for the Austrian. Senna broke down in tears and Watkins, who was a close friend, told him he should retire immediately and go fishing with him in the Scottish estate, in his Scottish estate. Senna replied, I cannot stop Sid, I cannot. Watkins would later write that he had a premonition at Imola would be a bad weekend. And then the direct quote from Sid was, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd been pretty upset after Ratzenberger has, was killed, but by the Sunday morning I, was, I, I had settled down. I can't say I was looking forward to the race, but I was certainly looking forward to the end of the weekend. Senna was the fastest. Senna was fastest in the Sunday morning warm-up, but by nearly a second. So his speed was certainly not had not been dented by the incidents of the previous two days. 
In the driver's briefing before the race, however, a minute's silence was held in memory of Ratzenberger. Watkins, who was at the meeting, reported later he did not think it was a good idea. When I looked around the room, sorry, Sid Watkins, direct quote here. When I looked around the room, most of the drivers were taking it well, except for Ayrton, who for the second time in 24 hours was crying. He was doing his best to overcome his grief, but silent tears were running down his face and he was licking them away to conceal his distress, he later wrote. So that's sort of, that, that's the morning briefing before he went out on that track. Wow. And that sort of says a little bit about the mentality of him on the day from the emotional side of things, yeah. but also his mentality of the type of driver he was that he had that commitment, that dedication that he wanted to continue on. Yeah. Um, so, so, so even with that in mind, he still he started from pole position on Sunday. Um, and then, I mean, straight away, then we had another major incident happened. Uh, we had Pedro Lamy, I think, went into the back of JJ Leto's uh, bogged down Benetton. Um, and literally, I don't know whether anyone has seen at the start of this race, um, but debris just, you know, literally was all over the start finish straight. And this is sort of part leads into some sort of theories as to what happened with Senna's crash later on. Um, and, and these are, unless people kind of dive into what happened at, at the San Marino Grand Prix, a lot of people kind of forget, actually, I mean, Ratzenberger's crash was a very forgotten crash. Barrichello's was even forgotten. So the fact that Pedro Lamy went into the back of JJ Leto, which brought out the safety car, um, which, again, led to explanations from teams as to what may have caused the crash for Senna. All this, a lot of people don't actually remember that. They just they just remember the corner and what the, the actual crash that happened there. Um, so what happened then anyway, so the safety car came out. We saw the safety car then for five, six laps um, out. Um, and then safety car peeled off ready for the start of the of, of lap six. Um, and we had Senna then followed by Schumacher, who sort of just literally took off guns blazing. Um, and then they, they did a lap. They got then... I, you know, however far into the, you know, obviously, they, well, however far, as far as Tamborello onto the seventh lap seven, um, and then the red flag came out. Um, and then again, I have some quotes here from uh, Sid Watkins as well. Uh, For the third time that weekend, there was a, fr a frantic effort to cut the chin strap and get the helmet off. We supported Ayrton's neck and removed the helmet. His eyes were closed and he was deeply unconscious. He looked serene. I raised his eyelids and it was clear from his pupils he had had a massive brain injury. We lifted him from the cockpit and laid him on the ground. As we did, he sighed. Though I am totally agnostic, I felt his soul departed at that moment. I mean, so Jeez. we don't need to go into the details of the crash. That's obviously from Sid, uh, who attended the scene. And then it was at 6.40 then that evening um, that Senna then was publicly pronounced dead. <sighs> Heavy stuff. Um, so what, what caused Senna's crash in the end? So there was a, there was an, inf okay, before we get into the investigation that was done, <clears throat> me, Williams had put out sort of some information. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was directed by Williams. Again, if, if I'm incorrect, someone can, you know, contact us and correct me. Mm -hmm. um, but initially the blame, and this is why I said about, um, 
Pedro Lamy going into the back of JJ Leto's car and the, and the safety car being brought out. Because the uh, what what came out from uh, Williams was basically that the cars following the safety car, they, they basically the tire pressure had dropped due to the tires cooling, uh, which lowered the ride height of the car. And in turn, they reckon that coming into the Tamborello corner, the there was there is bumps on that corner, and as a result, the car sitting lower was hitting those bumps like a skid a lot harder than it would normally. Um, this, I, 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 I well, it, it is wrong, obviously, for, for a number of reasons. One, obviously, we can, and again, I don't want to get into details on the crash, but there was no turning on the wheels of the car, um, which indicate, like, if he was losing control of the car from it bottoming out, um, the, tire, the, the wheels, the tires weren't changing direction um, as he was going off track. Um, also, he'd already done a full lap prior to the accident, um, which would have heated the tires up um, and he would have been in more optimal conditions going into um, lap seven, um, where we can see from the footage, the car bottomed out equally as hard on lap six as it did on lap seven. In fact, I would argue that it probably bottomed out more in lap six than it did on lap seven. Right. But there was an investigation anyway uh, from an independent investigation in I think from, in Bologna, uh, and the, it was, the the investigation was into Senna and Ratzenberger's crash. But I mean, Ratzenberger's crash was a little bit more cut and dry. Um, but the cause of Senna's crash, though, in the official report, was put down to the steering column. Um, so basically, Senna had asked for uh, an adjustment pre-race to the steering column because he wasn't happy with the positioning of the, of the wheel. So they shortened the steering column. Um, so effectively, as crude as it sounds, it was a cut and weld job um, on the steering column. And what happened then through the course of the race or the, the few laps, those welds or whatever had been put in place had come undone, had broken. And as a result, he had no steering coming into that left turn, which obviously saw him go straight on then into the wall. Um, so that's the official investigation report. Uh, that is their findings. Um, and I'll be honest, I would personally, I would believe and take that as a read because that was originally a conspiracy theory for a while that people thought that, you know, it was the steering column and Williams were involved in a cover up um, that they didn't want to say that they had made a mistake. Um, so, um, but the official finding was that it was the steering column and I would be more willing to sort of put my money on that was the case more than the car bottoming out from, um, from low ride height because of the, the tire pressures. Yeah. 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 So th th this was obviously, this was a seminal moment in, in, in terms of safety in, in F1 history, um, the, the 94 season. So what has changed in the years, uh, since then? Yeah, so a couple of things. Well, a lot changed. I mean, the I mean, there was I saw a great quote from Gerhard Berger um, because in the seventy, like like I was saying earlier, um, sort of the decades that sort of preceded the the crash of Senna, it was common that a driver died every season. That yeah. was that was inevitable. It was it was nearly a given that it was going to happen, and in some cases, more than one would die in a season, especially yeah. in the seventies and and sixties and, and stuff. 
But in the 80s, though, there was fewer fatalities. There was two fatalities, race fatalities in the 80s. Um, four overall, two of them came from testing, two of them came from, from races themselves. Um, but Gerhard Berger, there's a good quote from Gerhard Berger that said, uh, he says, we got too confident that the dangerous times were over. We realized that it had not changed at all and that we had gotten lucky for a while. That shook the FIA, the teams, the drivers. After this, everybody joined forces together with the FIA in the lead, and it came to a very good result. So, you know, it's very, the, the 80s sort of painted a, an incorrect picture. You know, they had eight years without a fatality between, um, I think it was 86 and 94, uh, obviously with Senna. <coughs> Excuse me. So what we had then, that what, what followed, we had some immediate, um, sort of reaction straight after. Uh, so the days that followed, you had uh, the GPDA, the, the Grand Prix Drivers Association was reformed, um, sort of spearheaded by Schumacher, Berger and, um, and Lauda. Um, and they called straight away, immediately called then for sort of reduced uh, speed and pit lanes. Um, also, there was a strange one that I didn't know about, actually, that I found was uh, actually a, a draw for the pit stop order. Um, I'm not sure how many, how long that actually lasted. That actually stayed for the whole season, but there was almost like a sort of like a lottery as to what your position would be when you were able to come in for your pit stop during oh, right. the race. Yeah, so you were sort of allocated a pit stop window that you would come in for. Um, so yeah, I thought that was strange. I didn't actually know that. Hmm. Um, but then, uh, so so yeah, as the the season even went on, like in in Spain, then which was not not too much longer, um, like they reduced the, the, the diffusers. Actually, I won't even list off all the stuff. Basically, they they started reducing stuff to to reduce the downforce by about fifteen percent, and then they also started doing changes to reduce the power output of the of the cars. Basically, to try and slow them down overall is what they were trying to do. Hmm. Um, I'm gonna also say actually one thing I meant to mention. That accident from Senna came only a month. Obviously, he, he was driving for Williams when that accident happened. Yeah. Um, and that came only a month after Frank, Frank Williams' accident, which put him in the wheelchair. Oh, yeah, nice. which, yeah, I, I, I didn't realize that was actually as, as close together as that. So yeah. um, just a bit of info there. Um, so, yeah, so, so the, immediately after, anyway, you had, you had the, the GPDA was formed, you had some changes to try and slow down the cars. Um, and then also then you had Sid Watkins, who was then promoted as the FIA expert advisory, um, sorry, on the FIA ex expert advisory safety committee. Uh, he was putting, he was the chairman of that, who then, who was very instrumental in, in sort of the safety uh, that was implemented in Formula One um right up until sort of his retirement and death um so i mean we had like you know increasing in, in crash testing better you know sort of more stricter guidelines um more protection around the driver's head we had the tethers as well for the wheels stop the wheels flying off um because so i do remember and i can't quite recall what uh, race it happened but i'm pretty sure we had a a marshal on track that was hit with a flying wheel which then sparked the conversation about the tethers yeah. um so and then uh, sort of more recently, then you had the hands, the head and neck support. So which is sort of the harness they have on their shoulders, which clips onto their uh, they clips onto their helmets. Yeah. Um, and that's to help support the neck and obviously the spine and stuff from whiplash and in severe impacts. Um, 
and then of course then in, in recent years now we have the halo um and in 2022 obviously with the additional weight to the cars is is predominantly because of uh you know improvement in the impact structures and stuff of the car um and i mean we didn't have a death in formula one then for 20 years since senna um like it was uh, jules bianchi then who was the who died then in 2014 well he actually died in 2015 but he had the accident in 2014 in Suzuka in Japan um, when he went into the back of the, 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 so the digger or the forklift that was lifting up yeah. the car to take it off and which then instantly sparked the, A, the virtual safety car. We got the virtual safety car came in straight after that um, because cars were just sort of going around, uh, you know, the, 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 there was a safety car out, but they were sort of going around catch, trying to catch up to the back at, at you know, any speed they really wanted to. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the halo had the halo been in place, um, you know, you, you you could have seen maybe a better outcome for Jules Bianchi on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you only have to look at um, Jeddah this year and Mick Schumacher's crash, the onboard footage mm. to see how far these cars really have come since then, since 1994. It's absolutely amazing what they've done. Well, look, even back to Roman Grosjean's crash. Yes. in Bahrain where he went into the barrier in, in like I mean I saw that and I mean that is as bad as any crash going back to the 70s and 80s and um you know like you know you think of Nicky Lauda um who was caught in his car um I mean Roman Grosjean's accident was every bit as horrific as that and watching it on TV you see it and you're like well you know hands up that's it there's there's no way anyone's walking out of that I mean yeah like a small portion of the cockpit, literally only the cockpit was buried between the two, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the, 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 the gap in the Armaco barrier. Um, so that even that in itself, okay, he, he, he suffered some burns, but to be able to get out of that shows the improvement of formula one safety. And it has gone from a sport that was originally seen as, like I said, seeing a death every season was expected um, to what we have now, which is probably one of the most safety conscious motorsports in the world to the, even to the, to to the detriment of, of, of the weight of the cars, the speed, the performance of the cars, if safe, basically safety takes, uh, takes precedence, which is great to see. And that's all sort of, you know, stems from, you know, going back to Senna, Jules Bianchi, um, learning their lessons. It's, it's, it's great to see. So it's safe to say that Ernst Senna was one of the greatest Formula One drivers of all time. From what he achieved in Formula One, his personality and the lasting impact he has had following his death, he has left a mark that is woven into the fabric of F1 forever. I, I would have to go back to 78 and 79. 1980, when I was go-kart driving as a teammate for <laughs> Fullerton, named Fullerton. He was very experienced, and I enjoyed very much that driving with him because he was fast, he was consistent. He was, for me, a very complete driver, and it was pure driving, pure racing. There wasn't any politics then right and no money involved either so it was real racing and i uh, i have that as a very good memory <laughs>